Blog Talk Radio. Eastern family and friends, welcome to Memories of a Great Airline, as told by the people of Eastern Airlines. Kind of a long title, but it says what the show will be about. Stories about the people and friends of Eastern over the history of the airline. Your storytellers will read stories found in several Eastern publications, such as the Repartee Magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, The Wings of Man, The Wings of Many, the Silverliners Magazine for the Flight Attendants, News Wings, which started it all with Pitcairn Aviation, and many more. Stories that tell the history of the many departments of an airline, Men and women performing their duties that made Eastern Airlines the great airline it was. Pilots of the early history of the airline that were asked to fly their open cockpit biplanes into the night skies, into good weather and bad weather, fog, rain, and snow, with the most crude instruments compared with today's high-tech cockpits. Roads, railroad tracks, and the early radio ranges filled with static were their only means of navigation. Landing at night with only the glow of flare pots put out earlier by ground personnel was a challenge that modern-day airmen cannot fathom with their full automatic landing systems. We owe much to these heroes of aviation progress, Maintenance performed by the early mechanics dealt with fabric airplanes, need to be patched and engines with the complexity of the internal combustion engines, needing constant repairs day or night, broken down in pastures like fields of grass and weeds. No matter what the weather, the mechanics under the direction of Mr. Johnny Ray always came through to keep the airline in the air. Hostesses were hired once passenger airplanes came about, like the Curtis Condor and the Kingbirds. They were introduced to the traveling public. From the early hostesses, as they were originally called, to the stewardesses in the 50s and 60s, to our present flight attendants on the jumbo jets carrying several hundreds of passengers in a single airplane. These professionals are the first responders when an aircraft has an emergency and to protect their passengers that could even cost them their lives. 
from just showing up at the airfield to catch a flight to their destination to the marvels of the modern-day reservation system, which Eastern Airlines pioneered in its early development. That allows for even booking your flight and seat from the comfort of your own home today. You've got to sell seats to stay in business, in the words of our beloved president. There has to be an ass in every seat, the airline excelled in sales and marketing. These men and women gave the airline prestigious businesses, business such as the official airline of Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. The airline of so many firsts, it would be hard to list here, just to mention a few. Uh, the first Boeing 727 flown by Eastern, the first wide-bodied aircraft, L-1011, the first air shuttle, the first Boeing 757, and many, many more. And finally, the stars of the show, the Eastern Aircraft, from the Pitcairn Mail Wing Aircraft to the Jumbo Jets, like the Lockheed L-1011, the Airbus A300, the McDonnell Douglas DC-10, the Boeing 747 to the all-glass cockpit of the Boeing 757. I could go on with why this airline, Eastern Airlines, became a legend in its time. However, we think the radio broadcast that you'll be hearing will more than tell the story, so we invite you to sit back and enjoy the memories of a great airline as told by the people of Eastern Airlines. Harry Lindquist and Captain Neil Holland will be joined by others as we introduce episodes each week. We hope you will join us on these Monday evenings at 8 p.m. East Coast time by going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. That's Captain Eddie. C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. blogtalkradio.com forward slash C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. And now for our first story.
would venture to say that most of us listening to this podcast have spent a lot of time around airplanes, in them, working on them, flying them, uh, customer service rep, but a lot of time around airplanes. But did you ever think about living in an airplane? Well, this is a story of a woman who did just that. She wasn't affiliated with the aviation industry, but she thought it would be neat to live in an airplane. This is the story of Joanne Ussery's Boeing 727 home. Her name, last name is spelled U-S-S-E-R-Y. If you'd like to see pictures and get more information about this Boeing 727 home, just Google it and there's pictures and interviews and lots of information about this home. This from a REPA article written by Jim Holder, Captain Jim Holder, several years ago. In 1994, Joanne Ussery found herself in the market for a new home. A huge storm in winter made huge trees loaded with ice fall on her 1,400-square-foot wood frame house, nearly flattening it. When she was looking for a mobile home, her brother-in-law, Bob Farrell, an air traffic controller at Greenwood Airport, suggested she might look for a retired jetliner. After all, she didn't live very far from the airport in Greenwood, where one of the premier aircraft salvage companies in the business regularly parted out airliners. It was the Memphis Group. So Joanne paid them a visit where Richard Cordell, the Greenwood facility manager, took her on a tour. Upon seeing the scrapped 1968 Continental Airlines 727, she responded, I want it. How much? It took several months to get the aircraft released. When it was available, she paid $2,000. Transportation cost another $4,000. To make it into her dream home, another $24,000 was spent. Armed with a borrowed 916th wrench and a screwdriver from Cordell's toolbox, she would periodically go back for various missing parts. Usury was allowed to remove interior panels and other odds and ends she needed from other 727s being salvaged. Cordell still refers to her as that gutsy little grandma. When the plane was set up, the tail was anchored in 18 inches of concrete. The nose extended out past the shoreline of the lake, giving the 727 home a dynamic look, as if it were flying. This can be seen on the picture on the Internet. The 11-foot wide cabin looks roomy with the high-density airline seats removed. The 76 side windows and 10 cockpit windows provide ample illumination. The floor plan consisted of three bedrooms, a living room dining room, a fully equipped kitchen, a laundry area, and her favorite room, the master bathroom with a jacuzzi, is is in the part of the fuselage where once was the cockpit. The cockpit control wheels were retained to maintain an aircraft look. Most of the interior remodeling was done by Joanne. Floors had to be built up in the bathroom and kitchen because they were uneven. Conventional padding and carpeting were installed, and linoleum was laid down in the kitchen. One original laboratory was kept functional as an aircraft laboratory. A garage door opener was used to open and close the rear air air stairs. Overhead luggage compartments were retained, given an abundance of storage space. Lighting was converted to house current. Ussery named her dream house Little Trump as a reference to Donald Trump's $16 million corporate jet, which happens to be a Boeing 727 as well. When asked why she lived in an airplane, simply cost-effective once it was set up. It required no maintenance. Repairing the roof because of rotten boards or having it eaten by termites is just out of the question. 
living in the jetliner to her grandchildren makes her the coolest grandma on the planet. She shared her story with the audience of TV talk shows like the Today Show and the David Letterman Show. She lived in her dream house from April 95 to May of 99. However, on May 18th, it was significantly damaged when it fell off a truck, hired to move it one mile to a new location where Joanne had planned to open it up for the public viewing. It's not known when any repair work will be performed pending resolution of insurance issues. And that was from an article written in uh, 2011. But again, you can go on the Internet and uh, just Google Joanne Usury and you can see the pictures, see the interview. It was quite a unique place to have. And now a page from our Sunday Morning Almanac, April 30th, 1961, 56 years ago today. Launch day for the Eastern Airlines shuttle between Boston, New York, and Washington. One of America's oldest and biggest airlines, Eastern, promised travelers hourly departures and no reservations required. Just $12 one way from New York to Boston, $14 from New York to Washington. The shuttle was a huge success, a storied part of the golden age of air traffic, celebrated in countless television commercials. Anytime there's a choice... We recently heard the story about the origins of Miami Springs, how that aviation uh, pioneer Glenn Curtis had a, an estate built there and then started selling real estate. Then uh, along came out Captain Eddie, and he decided to move much of Eastern's operation from Atlanta and New York to this area. And so this story is a continuation, and it's written by the uh, same man, Anatole and Garcia Carbonell. It's in the book, The Wings of Man. But here it talks about the start of flight attendant training at Miami Springs Villas. On Christmas Day, 1953, Miami Springs Villas opened. After purchasing the 11-acre Curtis Estate, Art Bruins had built five two-story villas with 50 rooms overlooking the golf course. The Curtis Mansion's ground floor rooms were turned into the lobby, front desk, and dining room. Its garage became the carriage house, a lounge with live music that later became one of the first members-only key clubs. Bruns added an extension on the south side of the mansion for the New Orleans Room, a supper club remodeled in 1958 as King Arthur's Court. There are unconfirmed reports that in 1954, National Airlines became the first airline to hold stewardess training at Miami Springs Villas. Eastern had held its first class in summer of 1955. The article goes on to tell about Eastern's flight attendant history. Eastern began operations in 1928 as Pitcairn Aviation with the U.S. Post Office air mail contract, but the airline did not carry any passengers for its first two years. Pitcairn was named Eastern Air, air Transport in 1930, and a year later, in January 1931, EAT hired its first stewardesses, who were required to have nursing degrees and wear polka dot dresses that had been selected by the wife of the company's president. At the time, all the fledgling domestic airlines hired stewardesses on the assumption that their presence would be an asset. Pan American, with its flying boat serviced overseas routes, hired stewards. At the time, women were not seen as effective lifesavers in case the airplane had to ditch in the water. 
Rickenbacker did not believe that stewardesses were necessary for an airline operation, but initially took no action in the, on the matter. In April 1934, the federal government launched an investigation into the suspicious manner, manner in which airmail air contracts had been awarded to the airlines in 1928. While the investigation proceeded, President Roosevelt canceled all airmail contracts and assigned Army pilots to fly the mail. Along with other airlines, Eastern Transport lost its airmail contracts and federal subsidies. Rickenbacker filed, fired all stewardesses and signed co-pilots their duties on the airline's reduced network. After several Army pilots, who were not trained for night operations, crashed while flying the mail, Rickenbacker accused Roosevelt of causing their deaths. This resulted in Rickenbacker's lifelong feud with Roosevelt and allegiance to the Republican Party. In June 1934, the post office awarded air mail contracts, but only to airlines that had not held them previously. Eastern Air Transport thus became Eastern Airlines, a minimal change adopted by others, such as American. Service resumed to, resumed to previous levels and even expanded, but for the next two years, Eastern operated without cabin attendants. When they were reintroduced in September 1936, only men were hired. Many had previously been salesmen or hotel clerks, and all had to be high school graduates. Issues of the Great Silver Fleet magazine late in the 1930s portray an almost militaristic, all-white male environment where cabin attendants held the entry-level positions for ambitious men who would work their way through the ranks to increasingly more responsible posts as mechanics, pilots, or administrators. The only openings for women at Eastern were as secretaries or telephone operations. Operators. Stewards, as the male attendants were known, were expected to perform many of the same services that porters provided aboard passenger trains, including baggage handling, cleaning the aircraft cabin, setting up sleeping berths on overnight flights, and even shining passenger shoes during the night. In the 1930s, Miami and New York were the two cabin attendant bases. Approximately 70% of stewards were married, and like the mechanics, formed a network of close friends intended to live in close proximity. Although Eastern restricted African Americans to baggage handling and aircraft cleaning until the 1960s, as early as the 1930s, men of Hispanic heritage were in demand as stewards and ticket agents. Their language skills addressed the needs of Eastern's many Latin American passengers connecting in Miami and Brownsville, Texas. The demand for Hispanic personnel only grew after the war, when Eastern started direct service between New Orleans and Mexico City, and later Miami and San Juan, Puerto Rico. It was only in 1933, after many stewards had joined the armed forces, that Eastern, as Pan American did, hired women to supplement the depleted ranks of cabin crew. Like the stewards, stewardesses also wore white jackets, but black skirts instead of pants. As the war effort wound down in 1945, Eastern quickly ramped up its air services frequencies using larger aircraft. Rickenbacker made a concerted effort to hire returning war veterans with experience in flying and servicing aircraft. It has not been possible to determine if this policy intended to replace stewardesses with stewards, but by 1946, a two-track cabin attendant system was in place with separate training facilities for men and women in Forest Hills, New York. Stewards were called pursers and given more comprehensive training that was consistent with an entry-level position for career track pilots or administrators. 
Their dark uniforms match those of pilots, co-pilots, and flight engineers, differentiated only by the number of gold stripes on the sleeves. Women remain stewardesses and continue to wear white jackets and black skirts. Their training remained more service-oriented. Apparently, the purser stewardess distinction caused problems and was dropped. It was only in 1954 that the stewardess uniform matched in color and style those of the stewards. Cabin attendant training moved to Miami in 1947. Trainees stayed at the Lawton, a low-rent hotel with communal bathrooms located at Northwest 7th Avenue and 36th Street and attended classes at the 36th Street Airport. Later, they stayed at the Gateway Hotel on East Drive at 36th Street across the street from Eastern's Terminal before the final move to Miami Springs Villas. Until 1955, prospective male cabin attendants could be between the ages of 21 and 35 and needed only a high school diploma. They could be single or married. Women had to be single between 21 and 26, have a nursing degree, and two years of college or equivalent experience. Starting salary was 250 a month, equivalent to 2150 today. By 1959, women could apply at age 20 with only a high school education. Two years later, later, weirdos and divorcees without children were accepted as trainees, but it wasn't until 1967 that the Transport Workers Union forced the airlines to accept married stewardesses. By then, it was estimated that as many as 40% were secretly married. Age limits disappeared in the 1970s. After the war, airlines began competing with each other in the quantity and quality of their flight services. National and Delta, Eastern's main competitors, also played up the attractiveness of their stewardesses. Rickenbacker remained adamant that in-flight services were a frill and that the job of airlines was to provide frequent and reliable air service. He was very proud that Eastern operated without any subsidies and was particularly miffed at the idea that subsidized airlines wasted money on fancy food and beautiful women. The captain also resisted pressure from Eastern executives to compete on flight amenities. So that's a brief history of uh, the flight attendants uh, or stewardesses as they were known back then. My, how that role has changed today. But the, still the main role of the flight attendant is the safety of the passengers. Ella's Beef Easters Radio Air Check and Classic TV Channel. Feel the second. Feel each minute. As the day goes by, feel yourself in it. It's a good day to up and fly away. It's so easy. Some good news from Eastern Airlines. Now you can fly to Miami and Fort Lauderdale at Super Saver prices. Just $119 for round trip night coach, $144 for round trip day coach, and you get all the frills. Just plan to stay at least seven days, but not more than 30 days, and reserve and purchase your ticket a week in advance. For reservations, call your travel agent for Eastern Airlines. Eastern Out of the book, Wings of Many, comes a story written by Hank Finelli, Jr. It's titled, Those Fabulous Eastern Pods. 
There has to be thousands of stories about those fabulous eastern pilots. Among them are those that generate accolades and create laughter. One such illustrious captain is none other than Captain J.D. Payne. Johnny has the ability to take any situation and turn it into a wonderfully pleasant experience. He possesses a magnetism that draws people to him, in addition to being a total, totally professional pilot. I remember well my co-pilot days on the DC-8 out of the New York base flying to San Juan with John. I flew with him for close to a year. In fact, my bit sheet would read any line of flying with Captain Payne. Lenny Careful would scream and yell, and I would still submit it the same way every month. One could not pay for the experience that Johnny extended free, and all one had to do is watch and listen. One story I enjoy recounting started on a hot night at the San Juan Terminal Gate for Flight 928. As everyone who has flown the DC-8 knows, Although a great airplane, it had no self-contained APU and consequently no air conditioning on the ground unless it was from a portable unit attached by ramp service. The temperature in the airplane on this particular hot and sticky night registered 96 degrees and that was before boarding the 252 passengers plus lap kits. So, the always-in-command Captain Payne informed the gate agent that we will have an air conditioner connected to this airplane before boarding any passengers, he would say. The agent supervisor then told Johnny that he would absorb the delay. Further, he, the agent, would write a letter to the chief pilot and tell him that Captain Payne had unnecessarily delayed the flight. While blocking the doorway to the gate, this is before jetways in San Juan, Johnny smiled and said, that's wonderful. Now get an air conditioner. Well, not known by anyone at that moment, but Mr. Arthur Lewis, then president of Eastern Airlines, came running to the gate at departure time only to witness a mob scene and no boarding. When he, Art Lewis, spotted Captain Johnny and approached him asking why the flight was delayed, Johnny said, Art, no one is going to New York until this airplane is cooled down below steam room temperature. At that, Mr. Lewis turned to the gate supervisor and advised him that he had two minutes to get an air conditioner connected to this airplane and get it cooled down. Johnny turned to Mr. Lewis and said, I think we will soon be on our way to New York, Mr. Lewis. Well, that's only half the story. Johnny and I had an ongoing bet relative to the quality of our landings. The bet was a bottle of Clooney scotch in the landing if the landing was a, a greaser, as we call them. However, it had to be within the first 1,000 to 3,000 feet of the runway, and conform to all EAL criteria. The rest of that month's flying went relatively smooth. However, the month of August brought temperatures that soared well above 100 degrees on the tarmac. It was Johnny's landing in San Juan 
On one such hell of a hot night, he touched down so smoothly that all one could hear was the wheels rolling beneath us. He turned off on the second high-speed taxiway, and boom, boom, two tires on the right truck blew. He braked to a stop and looked at me and said, If you open your mouth, you'll be taking the E-train back to Kennedy. But lo and behold, a few minutes later, here come the buses and a portable stairs to deplane the passengers. And following close behind is an air conditioning truck. The agent boarded the aircraft and came to the cockpit, and while pointing to the air conditioner said, Captain, if you spread this son of a bitch all over the airport, I'll find a place to plug that thing in. Johnny never commented or turned around. When the agent was out of the cockpit, John looked at me and said, They finally went to school. To have been a member of the family of those fabulous Eastern pilots is a blessing of such magnitude that it makes it impossible to totally verbalize John was a pilot's pilot. No pretentious attitude, no arrogance, no bragging, just a great human being. I first flew with John when I was 23 years old. He once said to me, Son, every person puts their pants on one leg at a time. Don't be impressed by anyone. Of course, there were those pilots that I enjoyed more than others, but I would do just about anything for any one of my colleagues that might be in need of my help. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to have flown with the best pilots in the world. Thank you for those fabulous guys, Eastern. Eastern Airlines serves 26 of our 50 United States. But today, we look beyond assigned flight patterns and we see the miracle that is America. Her names are written on the land and the peoples who wrote them are diverse as the land itself. Polynesian mariners landed on the shores of this island from their outrigger canoes and called it Hawaii. The Spanish found this stretch of coastline lovely and named it the Jewel, La Jolla. An Indian tribe cut this name with the flint tip of a feathered shaft, Mojave. In the shadows of the Rockies, our conscience named a settlement Fair Play. Scandinavian mythology swept the plateau that rims the Grand Canyon and called it Valhalla. The French embraced the Mississippi with a parish and they called it Baton Rouge. Tilling this Pennsylvania farmland, German settlers named it Heidelberg. The English settled Cape Cod and called the county Barnstable. E pluribus unum. One from many. This is the miracle we celebrate today. One nation indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. We celebrate not the final achievement, for there is much still to be achieved. We celebrate the promise, the progress, the hope. 
And this article appeared in the Newswing Eastern Air Transport from Brooklyn, New York, June 1931. And uh, Eastern Air Transport Incorporated then was a division of North American Aviation Incorporated. The article is titled Flying Hostesses, and it's reprinted from the St. Paul, Minnesota, Minnesota News. Once the exclusive title of the woman of the home, hostess has a variety of interpretations today, the latest being hostess of the air. On the deluxe air passenger service which Eastern Air Transport operates between New York and Richmond via Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington, a young woman who serves as an under the title of hostess is included as a regular member of the crew of each plane. Her duties are many, and they are important. So many of the people who fly now are making their first air trip and making it with something of the do and dare spirit. Quite naturally, the first flight passengers are timid about flying, and it is not until they are up in the air with a beautiful panorama of a clean, orderly, symmetrical earth beneath their wings that they become staunch advocates of air travel, and all fear and misgivings disappear. It is there that the first usefulness of the air hostess takes place. The prospective passenger says, if I only had someone to make the trip with me, and they learn that someone will, a competent young lady who will put them at ease and look after their needs, who will, as a true hostess, tell them interesting things about the big 18-passenger plane they are in, point out scenes and unusual places they are flying over, furnish them with cigarettes, a cup of tea and biscuits, or a cup of bouillon. The route is over America's oldest highway, the old road which connected the 13 original states. Hospitality always has been tradition, traditional in this territory. Now it has become a tradition in the air above the land. One of the hostesses is the daughter of an army chaplain, a gracious young person who knows all the points of perfect hostessing. Another is the daughter of an army colonel. A third is from an old southern family. And another is an ambitious young woman who left her Maryland home, learned to fly at Curtis Field in New York, and now speeds back and forth between New York, Maryland, and Virginia. All are well chosen and were required to go through a period of rigid training before they boarded the airliners as first hostesses of the air. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern Shuttle has always been very efficient, but it's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. 
It's easy to make friends working for an airline, especially one like Eastern Airlines. In fact, many former employees refer to Eastern as the Eastern family. The following is such a story by an Eastern pilot for another Eastern pilot whom he never had the opportunity to fly with. It was written by Captain Jim Holder about another Eastern captain, Walt Shelton. Walter J. Shelton was born on September 12, 1920 in Nashville, Tennessee. At the age of six, his family moved to Miami, so one could say that he was a Florida native. Walt died here in Conyers, Georgia on October 3, 2008. He was 88 years old. His wife, Dolores, asked that I conduct the funeral service for him and also make all the arrangements. She only established the date and picked the casket. Of course, since I had done never, never done this, only I was asked to speak at, at some. I immediately contacted Eastern Captain Lou Rabbit, as he had experience in these matters, as he was a lay minister. Lou also conducted Sunday morning services at the Eastern Pilots Hunt Club during deer season, as well as a weekly Bible study at his home. Walt was a captain with Eastern Airlines, retiring in 1980 after 37 years of service, having hired on with Eastern on January 1, 1943. He was the originator of the Florida Keys Outboard Club, as well as the founder and president of the OX-5 Wing in Georgia, known as the Peach Wing. Those who knew and loved Walt certainly realized that he lived a life worth celebrating because what he experienced in his life is what we all hope for. A few examples of that. He was married 58 years and one day to a wonderful woman, Dolores, spelled with an O, as he told me many, many times. He started in aviation when it was in its infancy and stayed there his entire professional life. He reached the pinnacle in his profession early on when he was promoted to captain after just a few years with Eastern Airlines. As a captain, he passed on his vast experience to his crews and was such a fine judge of piloting skills that he was selected to test pilot applicants for Eastern. Later in his career, he was asked to train Eastern pilots who were upgrading to larger and faster aircraft. This he did most successfully. After his retirement in 1980, Walt continued to enjoy life and with the Lord's bought, restored, and lived in many homes from Miami to Atlanta to the Smoky Mountains to New Hampshire. As an investor, he also purchased many rental properties and successfully managed them all. He enjoyed doing this very much, and as a matter of fact, according to Dolores, he pretty much thought he was on vacation when he was looking for or working on his properties. Walt lived a long time, 88 years, and if he had died at age 65 or so and had been living in the Miami area, then he would have had most or maybe all of the Miami crew base at his funeral service. Everyone knew him and admired this man. They loved to fly with him, and 
that is about the greatest thing you can say about an airline pilot. But I want to tell you about the Walt Shelton that I knew. For my entire career, I only knew of a Captain W.J. Shelton who flew out of Miami by seeing his name on the seniority list. He had hired on 20 years before me and was in double digits while my seniority number consisted of four digits. By the time I got down to three digits, he was well into single numbers. Walt was heading towards number one on our list. He did end up number one in Atlanta and almost number one for the entire airline. Anyhow, a long time ago, I got a message on my answering machine. It was from this Walt Shelton fellow who wanted to go to the next Arepa luncheon in Atlanta with me as his wife would not let him drive that far, and he really wanted to attend a Reaper luncheon. Seems he had never gone to one. So he had looked in the Reaper roster, saw that I also lived in Conyers, and called me. So we agreed to meet at the food mart at 10 a.m. the next morning, located at the intersection of Highway 212 and 20. He said he would be driving an old van with a screwed-up paint job, so I would have no problem finding him. I got there about ten minutes early and pulled around through the parking lot and stopped on the east side of the building where I could see the parking lot and the road that I assumed he would be coming in on. I waited and waited and waited and waited some more. I called home on cell phone to see if he had called to cancel. Nope, no call. Now, that day, I was to be the one selling the raffle tickets, so I started getting antsy, as it is a 40-minute drive to Atlanta, and the luncheon starts at 11 a.m., and I had to be set up early. After about 30 minutes, around 10.20 a.m. or so, I said to myself, could it be that he is on the other side of this store waiting on me so i cranked up my truck and drove through the parking lot over the west side of the building up against georgia 20 well there up against the store was this weird looking van with a fellow leaning up against it staring out at highway 212 which was the direction i was to have come from to get him guess who it was We had been on opposite sides of the food mart staring in opposite directions for 30 minutes. We had a big laugh out out of that one many times. Anyhow, we got to the luncheon barely in time. As soon as we walked in, most of the guys came over to shake Walt's hand. Turns out many of the pilots there had flown co-pilot or flight engineer for Walt and had not seen him in many, many years as he had been based in Miami until just before he retired. Among those were Jay Allen, Gib Guerin, and Ted Hutchinson. Another was Corny Kramer, who was a senior captain when I first flew with him over 40 years ago. Corny proudly announced to the luncheon that Walt was the captain on his first trip with Eastern. Get the picture? This was a fellow, Corny who I thought was older than God, and he flew his first trip at Eastern with Walt. 
man, I was basking in the limelight as I was the one who brought Walt to his first Atlanta Reaper luncheon. I'm here to tell you that I, I started looking at my new friend, Walt Shelton, in a new light. Who is this guy? Well, Walt really enjoyed his first Atlanta Reaper luncheon and rode with me for many, many more in the ensuing years. For some, time, for some time, he continued to drive over to my home so as to ride with me, but sadly it came to be that he could not even make that short drive. So Dolores would bring him over to my house, and afterwards he would meet us somewhere to pick him up. Back then, she got a lot of free time on the second Tuesday of every money, month. I could tell you a lot of stories about our luncheon trips together, but I do want to relate in that is the day that Walt won the first place raffle prize of $20. I won the second one at 15 and then he won the third place of $10. Everyone knew we rode in together, so we were really getting razzed about that, but Walt, being the smart fellow that he was, declined to accept the $10, and it went to someone else on a redrawing. However, Walt loved to tell the story about how we skunked the group that day and usually mentioned it at least once on our subsequent trips. I do have many recollections of Walt going to luncheons with me, but one that I really, really remember for sure was on the morning of Tuesday, September 11, 2001, after Dolores had dropped Walt off. He was standing next to me at my computer when, on the TV, we saw the first World Trade Center building collapse. Like all of you, where we were and what we were doing uh, that, that on that day is burned into our memories. Mine were with Walt Shelton, and it was a very sobering ride later that morning as we drove into Atlanta for the luncheon. In addition to the Reaper luncheons, Walt was my guest at the Atlanta QB hangar several times. Now, the QBs are not something to be talked about. QB stands for Quiet Birdman. But I can tell you that Walt one night told the world's funniest and shortest joke in the history of our hangar. That is all about all I can say about that. But he brought the house, or as we call it, hanger down. Once again, I had heaps of reflected glory because of my good friend, Walt. As you know, Walt was a Miami fellow, so he and I never got to fly together at Eastern. But he missed flying big time. So one day I asked him to be my photographer for a flight in my Bonanza. There was a big controversy going on about the rezoning of a parcel of land adjoining Deer Run, where I live. And I thought some photographs from 3,000 feet or so might be of use in our fight to defeat that rezoning. So Walt readily agreed, and one clear afternoon, he, he took about 20 photographs as we circled overhead the property. His photo, photos were very, very good, and I wish I could say that we defeated the rezoning because of them, but we did not. I expect now that 
whoever holds the bankrupt loans from many of those houses, wish Walt's photographs had defeated the rezoning. But the best thing that came out of that rezoning battle was that I can now say truthfully that I too flew with Walt Shelton. Over the years during our drives to and from luncheons, Walt would, at my urging, tell me stories about his life. And he told me plenty. So many, so many that I ended up interviewing both he and Dolores, which resulted in a major article in the winter 2001 issue of Repartee. One was how he got his pilot's ticket two years before he, the required age of 16. That was a good story and involved the doctor being in a hurry and not giving him a proper physical, including a hernia check, which would have revealed, how can I say this, a lack of hair in a private area. (laughs) The lack of which surely would have revealed his true age. If so, he would have had to wait another two years to get his pilot's license as he was one month short of his 14th birthday. But with his medical in hand, Walt quickly soloed, and after getting 50 hours of pilot time, he was issued a limited commercial pilot license, and therefore was legally, except he was way too young, he was legally able to hop passengers for pay as long as he stayed, as long as he stayed within 10 miles of the airport. By the time he turned 16, Walt had several hundred hours and was also an accomplished airshow pilot. His particular stunt was to fly over the crowd, turn off the engine, then step out on the landing gear strut, reach around, grab the prop, and spin it to restart the engine. Now, that is quite nervy. He told me that it never failed to start and it never failed to scare the crowd below big time. Later in Walt's career, he became a civilian instructor training student Army pilots in World War II. The Army had established a training base in a grass field just north of Jackson, Mississippi, near the Natchez Trace. There he quickly moved up to become a senior instructor and then a flight commander. Then he became the Maytag pilot, his words. That meant he had the unhappy job of washing out a student who had trouble learning to fly. But many was the fellow who came to fly with Walt for his final check ride before coming, becoming a foot soldier, only to have Walt instill some confidence in the fellow and thus get the poor soul back on track and be salvaged as a pilot. Having been an Air Force student like that many years later, I can say that Having a Maytag IP like Walt was a blessing from heaven. But one story that Walt loved to hear was mine. As a kid on a farm in rural Mississippi, some 50 miles north of Jackson, back during World War II, I used to lie on the grass and watch those orange and yellow biplanes up above me diving, climbing, looping, and such. Never in my wildest dreams did I ever think I would later in life meet one of the pilots flying those planes. But I sure did. 
Our farm farm was a few miles northeast of Lexington, Mississippi, and that town was one of the checkpoints that Walt and the other pilots used to locate the training area. You see, Walt was one of the guys flying those planes that this skinny kid, me, down there on the grass was watching. Walt claimed that he, on many occasions, saw me down there in the grass. He loved to remind me of that. One other story from the World War II training field that Walt told me. Seems he and a student took off in a steerman one day. For you non-pilots, a steerman is a fixed-gear biplane, two wings, which holds two pilots in open cockpits. It was one of the most commonly used airplanes in World War II to teach pilots how to fly. Walt and the student departed on a training flight and immediately saw that one of the wheels had fallen off just as they left the ground. They flew around and around trying to decide what to do, as landing with only one wheel surely meant the plane would ground loop and possibly flip over. Not a good thing at all. Like I said, this plane had fixed landing gear, and so the remaining wheel and empty strut could not be retracted for a belly landing. After a while, Walt decided that, due to the danger of the plane flipping over, he alone would land the airplane. So Walt flew back over the airfield where he told the student to bail out, which he did. Walt then brought the steerman in for a very slow landing on one wheel. He held the strut with no wheel off to the very last second and then was able to keep the plane upright and on the grassy runway with no damage other than a very dirty strut. He said that the wingtip never seemed even touched to touch the ground. Walt did a fine job of flying that day. Every day Walt flew, he did a fine job. However, there was much more to our, that's my wife, Carrie and me, our relationship with the Sheltons than simply reaper luncheons with Walt. Over the years, we have dinner guests in each other's homes. They came to our Super Bowl parties, and we have enjoyed dinners out together. An honor that we clearly recall was that Debbie, their daughter invited Carrie and me to a surprise golden wedding anniversary party for Walt and Dolores at the Honey Creek Country Club. And that night, the packed house also celebrated Walt's 80th birthday. Yes, Carrie and I both have many pleasant memories with Walt and Dolores Shelton. Eastern than any other airline in the free world. If you've helped make us America's favorite way to fly, we thank you. If you haven't flown Eastern recently, give us a try. We'll show you we really do earn our wings every day. We earn our wings. 
Earlier, we heard part one of the article written by Jim Holder on his good friend, Captain Walt Shelton. This is what Jim wrote in a copy of Repartee uh, many years later about his friend, Walt Shelton. When I heard of Walt's passing, I put the sad news out on my personal Eastern Airlines network. Almost immediately, I got a response from Captain Steve McDonald, one of Walt's Miami friends and former crew members. He sent me two stories, which he apparently had gotten from Walt, and gave me permission to read them today. Steve says, Anyone who didn't like flying with Walt Sheldon is or was a very sick person, and to be avoided at all costs. What an excellent captain, truly one of Eastern's finest sticks, and a good personal friend of mine for years after his retirement. I have lots of personal stories about Walt. Let me share two. This one was an instrument check in a DC-4. Before simulators, six-month instrument checks were performed in the airplane on the back side of the clock. One night, Walt drew Bill Reithorse for his check pilot. Bill had a quirk that no other check pilot on the DC-4 had, and Walt missed it. Besides pulling mixtures to idle cutoff, Walt, Walt, Bill was in the habit of also shutting off the mag switches on the overhead panel for an instrument check. The check ride was successful, complete, successfully completed, and Walt was making a two-engine approach to 27 left in Miami, near midnight. Bill was messing, messing with his flight bag, getting ready to get off the plane, when they got back to the 36th Street Terminal, and not paying attention, Walt realizes that he isn't going to make the runway and tells Bill. Without looking up, Bill says to start the other engines. So Walt comes up with a mixture on number one and throttle forward, but number one engine doesn't unfeather or start. Walt then comes up with a number two mixture, then throttle forward, and it also doesn't unfeather or start. Walt excitedly tells Bill that they're going to hit Lejeune Road. Bill looks up from his flight bag to check out the situation. Mixtures are rich, so that's okay. But there is the problem. The mags are still off. Bill reaches up and turns both mag switches on. Gigantic kaboom! Both engines start with a bang. Airplane does a major yaw, night sky illuminated, right over Lejeune Road. Well, Walt is able to land the airplane, and they taxi over to the 36th Street Terminal and shut the plane down. Walt's wife drives to the plane, and Walt gets in the car. Routine check, Walt, she asks. Walt calmly mentions that rather than go straight home, he needs to get a beer at Gretner's Bar on Lejeune Road, next door to the Lejeune Drive-In Theater. So Walt and his wife are sitting at the bar, when Walt casually says to the bartender, I hear you had some excitement here tonight. The bartender was very excited in his response. You should have seen it. This airliner exploded right over the drive-in theater next door. So they stopped the movie and turned on the lights to find any wreckage. There were naked bodies running everywhere. Bill and Walt interrupted a lot of romances. Another story by Steve McDonald. Seattle to St. Louis in three hours. We were the morning departure from Seattle after a usual delightful layover. We ate at McCormick's for supper. Forecast was clear with jet stream of 200 knots right on our tail from Seattle to St. Louis. So Walt telephoned St. Louis to tell them we'd be an hour early. Normal flight time was four hours. St. Louis vehemently told Walt, don't get here early. No gate available. Delay your chip. Do anything, but don't get here early. 
Needless to say, the Seattle crew wanted us off the gate on time with no delay. So we pushed back on time. Walt never mentioned his plan. So began one of the best sightseeing trips of my career at Eastern Airlines. Walt told the passengers that we would be in St. Louis right on time, but because they could not accommodate us arriving early, that we would do a bit of sightseeing along the route today. First we went over and examined Mount Rainier. Next we went to Grand Coulee Dam, descended and did a 360 around it. Next on our itinerary was the Devil's Tower in Wyoming. There were no automobiles during doing TV advertising atop the tower that day. Next we headed for Mount Rushmore. We descended down to a couple of thousand feet over Rushmore and made a 360. The passengers loved it. The worst part of the trip, we still arrived half an hour early in St. Louis and had to sit to wait for the gate. Thanks for the memories, Walt. Steve McDonald. Walt was my friend. He enriched my life. Many are the Eastern pilots who flew with Walt before I met him has told how much they enjoyed flying with Captain Shelton. He was an excellent pilot and had the rare ability to transmit his skills and experience to those he flew within such a way that they hungered for more. This was a common comment about Walt Shelton. What more can one pilot say about another? For Harry Lindquist and myself, thank you for tuning us in today. We hope you will come back and listen to more stories and memories of the world's greatest airline. Stories of its people and planes as told by the Eastern family. If you missed the 8 p.m. scheduled radio show, don't worry, as it will be in the active file on the Internet in the archive at blogtalkradio.com forward slash C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, Captain Eddie. The episodes are listed by numbers with the highest number, the latest broadcast. Since this is our eighth broadcast, and each episode usually has seven to eight stories, you will have some great memories to catch up on if you are a first-time listener. We hope to turn you into a regular listener with these fascinating Eastern stories. Now, if you have a story about Eastern Airlines that you would like to share with others and tell your part of the Eastern memories, why not send it to us? Our email is eneilholland at yahoo.com. That's eneil, N-E-A-L-H-O-L-L-A-N-D, at yahoo.com. We'll record it and give you the credit on the air. Now, until next week, we'll sign off with the familiar theme music of our beloved airline, Eastern Airlines. Good night to the Eastern family and friends.